Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up the text back in Genesis 18, verse 22, where we see Abraham's intercession for the city of Sodom. And we left off with the last episode discussing the disclosure of God's justice to a man of faith. And we got to look into the mind of God a little bit and discover some of the things that uh, happened there as he is going through what we would call a decision-making process. Although I think from a sovereign and theological, <laughs> theologically accurate standpoint, uh, he's not wavering. He's not making up his mind about something. Everything has been determined. Uh, he knows everything all at once uh, in all of eternity. So it's not really uh, an idea of, am I going to do this or not? The question was, is am I going to reveal this to Abraham or not? And again, even that we have to understand from a broad theological perspective, really the 30,000 foot view, if you will, that even that was also known to God. But he gives us a little bit of insight into his own mind. And of course, remember where we are and who it is that is receiving this as far as revelation. It's Moses. So God is disclosing to Moses what went on in his mind as this was about to unfold. So very interesting just to think about it from that perspective. Obviously, at the end, the Lord says that he is the Lord decides that he's going to disclose this. And that's what we get in verse 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, after we have looked into his mind, because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see. This then sets us up to understand that Abraham has now been drawn into this conversation. So verses 22 to 33 take us to the end of the chapter. And in this section is one of my favorite verses from a theological perspective. And I would say this more of late, uh, not, not recently, but this wasn't like a favorite verse early as a, as a new Christian. But later on, as I began to read through the Bible over and over again, there's a verse in here, verse 25 specifically, that really stood out to me. And I think we'll see as we get in there that it is really incredible, incredible statement. And it's one that we really would do well to pay attention to. So we're looking at the intercession uh, that takes place by a man of faith here in these verses. Number one in verses 22 and 23, we see that people of faith will intercede. Let's pick up the text. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. One of the things that we come to recognize in all of this is that we have the three men and it's not, and I, I guess I need to go and correct uh, something that I had said earlier that the Lord had appeared in the form of three men. One of the three men is the Lord. And because he is in the appearance of human flesh, this would be a Christophany. Okay. But he's not all three men. So the other two are turning and going from there towards Sodom but it, And then it says in this conjunction here, 
but but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now this all makes sense. Uh, by the way, if you were to just to jump down, look at how chapter 19 starts, the two angels. There's no introduction necessary because we've already met them in the preceding chapter. And they go from a group of three down to two. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And then we get that whole thing. We'll, we'll go into that later. But now it makes sense. One of the three men is the Lord. That would be a pre-incarnate form of Christ. So a Christophany. And the other two are angels, but now Abraham stays back to have this conversation of the Lord. And so in verse 23, we read this, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Okay. There are a couple things that we can point out here. Number one is we're thinking about Abraham's intercession here in verses 23 and 24. And, you know, he begins to set up this pattern, which we'll get into in a second. There is a distinction that we could draw between this and other places in Scripture. For instance, we know that now the Lord has chosen to disclose to Abraham what he's about to do. That has been made clear. And so now we're going to have this dialogue of intercession that takes place. But what is about to happen is destruction, divine judgment on a city. We know of other places like this. For instance, a small minor prophet in the Old Testament that we're all very familiar with, his name is Jonah. And Jonah is given a message that he must go from his town and travel to Nineveh and deliver them a message from God as the prophet to say that God will bring destruction on the city in 40 days. Now, how does Jonah react to the news of God's destruction on another city? There are some parallels here, and it's it's definitely appropriate for us to think on those things, okay? Because here, Abraham doesn't necessarily have a vested interest in the city, only in so much as he knows that his nephew Lot and his family are there. And so, of course, he doesn't want to see their home destroyed, but he doesn't really have a super personal connection to this. So in, in other words, if they've done wickedly, why does he care? Now, we're going to get into that here in just a second. But when we go back to Jonah and the message that Jonah receives, he receives the message that God is going to destroy them and it's giving them an opportunity to repent and he recognizes that. But the question I have on the table is, does Jonah try and intercede? Is there anything in your, you know, go back, you can read it. It's very short. You can read the entire book of Jonah in under 10 minutes. Uh, if you read the book of Jonah, does he at all intercede for the people, the inhabitants of the city of Nineveh? And of course, the answer is no. So there's a very, you know, there's a, there's quite a distinction here. There's two very, very different uh, trains of thought with regard to this. And one of the things that we can learn from this is that not only will people of faith intercede and we ought to intercede, but on a secondary aspect, we shouldn't be delighting in destruction. 
And I think that this really actually gets to, and, and this is another section of scripture, but again, it's a proper way for us to think about something like the imprecatory Psalms, just by way of application. We read through the Psalter, and of course we have things that we really enjoy in that section of scripture, and you know we have the things that we cling to. But there are some Psalms in there that are called imprecatory Psalms because they are calling down the judgment of God on the wicked. And one of the things that we need to think about is even when we go back and read them, what we are doing and what the psalmist is doing, who's filled with angst, right? And anger, righteous anger over the actions of the wicked and all those things is they are not delighting in destruction, but they are rather subsuming it under, you know, or, or to God. And, and that's what we need to think about. Because we're getting to verse 25 here in a second, right? And that's where all of this is going to come about. And so we know that there is a ultimate theological end for the wicked, but we don't delight in that. If they are unrepentant and they refuse to turn from their ways, we know their ultimate end. And honestly, if we think about that from an eternal perspective, that should fill us with sorrow, shouldn't it? Why? Because we all deserve that. We all deserve the end that, that the unrepentant will receive, but by the grace of God, he has plucked us from that and set our feet on a rock and given us a brand new path that is that of life and life everlasting in Jesus Christ. But we don't, dis, we don't, we don't delight in destruction and it should, there, there is a sense, even when we see the wickedness that, that men are capable of in the depravity of their, their hearts, their hearts of stone, even then we know that there is a chance for salvation while there's still breath in their bodies and they can still turn from their sins and call out to the Lord for salvation. So we don't necessarily delight in destruction. Just very quickly in our church now at the time that I'm recording this podcast, here it is in, in August of 2023, We've been going through the book of Revelation. And the point is, is when you read about that, you know, I more and more am desiring to see what comes at the end of the book of Revelation, right? When you get to past chapter 20 in the great white throne judgment, then all of a sudden we are, we are encountering the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and the beauty that's there. And it's incredible. And this is where we get to spend eternity future, I desire that. And look at how the book of Revelation ends. It says, come Lord Jesus. And, and he even says to John there in the end that I am coming quickly. And, uh, and, you know, we've got these things. Do I want to see the things that will lead up, you know, to the, the, the millennial kingdom or the everlasting uh, eternal state afterwards? No, the seven years that precede the, the millennial kingdom and the seven years of, uh, and, and the, the kingdom that precedes the eternal state, you know, the kingdom and the eternal state, those are relatively good things. Even the kingdom, you know, it's got some issues there because at the end you have one final battle as Satan is released and everything. But, but the fact is, is the seven years leading up to that are just filled with chaos. They're filled with destruction and judgment. And no Christian wants to see that. We're not giddy over those things because we know 
you know, there's a couple different things. Number one, God's mercy and grace are are displayed throughout the period of the great day of the Lord, the great tribulation. Many people are going to come to faith because of it, but because they come to faith and they deny the Antichrist and those things, they're probably going to end up being martyred for their faith. Okay. So there's that. Uh, but we don't, we don't delight in the death of those who harden their hearts. You know, when people finally, as, as the judgments get more and more severe, you get through the trumpet judgments and into the bold judgments, people know without a doubt that this is from God. It's otherworldly, you know, it, it can't be explained away by natural phenomenon. I mean, this is the judgment of God. And in a couple different points, he sends his angels out to declare to them that this is what's happening. And what are men's responses over you know, just largely, I, I, you know, some people may respond and, and believe, but for the most part, you know what men do? They harden their hearts and shake their fists at God. And that should fill us with sorrow. And that just goes to prove, you know, that we, if we have the spirit of Christ, you know, or we, we have God's spirit, right? We have the Holy spirit in us. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Uh, we are not going to delight in destruction. So when Abraham receives this news, this doesn't fill him with giddy joy. Oh, look, they're getting what's coming to them. No, no, no. He, he's going to intercede. And I think that, that you know, there's an application there for us because we have a solemn duty to be men and women of prayer, right? That, that's what we have been called to. But one of the things that God has left us on this earth for is, is to grow for our sanctification, for our spiritual maturity. We are supposed to be growing in our faith. And one of the ways that we grow is we learn to cultivate a, a discipline of prayer in our life. And we don't just pray for the health needs of those in the church. We need to pray for those who are unsaved. We need to be praying for God's intervention in their life. And we need to be interceding on their behalf. And so we see that here in these first couple of verses. And then, then we have this formula for intercession. And this kind of, we, we have already kind of dipped our toe into this verse 24. Not only is he interceding, you know, with this question, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In that statement is the assumption that there are righteous people. Surely there isn't a city that is just 100% totally you know, in rebellion against God. So he's making this assumption that there are going to be righteous people there. And if there are, are you really going to destroy the whole city, even if there are righteous people there? And so then begins this formula. Okay. Okay. So the theological debate is what about the righteous in the city? Are there people who are righteous? What is righteousness? Okay, obviously we're not talking about total eradication of sin because even we carry that, even if we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, we still carry about this old man, Romans chapter seven. You know, we, we have this, we have this with us. We know that this is true. So we're not talking about that necessarily, but righteousness has to do with the idea of striving to live for God, recognizing that what that God has spoken and trying to live according to his revelation. And we're trying to do that by faith. This is how Abraham is saved by faith. God has revealed himself to him and God and Abraham believes him. Are there people in the city that have heard of God most high, the creator of heaven and earth and who believe him and are trying to live their life according to him? If so, those are the righteous. But Abraham just assumes that those people exist and the appeal isn't necessarily on them. 
the appeal has to do with the divine character, the, the character of God himself. And this is where we get to one of my favorite verses in the entire Old Testament, Genesis 18, 25. Hear how Abraham answers this. You know, he's, he's basically asking like a rhetorical question, right? Because he says this, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Why is that rhetorical? Because he goes and answers it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, verse 25, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. If you're going to bring your divine judgment down, are you really going to do that on the righteous as well? Far be that from you. So twice he says that in the verse, and then he ends it this way. And this is my favorite portion of this verse. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And therein is the theological key. Will God do what is just? And the answer is yes. He is bound by his character. He must. He has no other choice. God is love. Will God display love? Yes. Will God display mercy? Yeah, he is a God of mercy. He can do that, and he does. But God is also a God of justice. And so would you be just? Would God be just if he has pardoned somebody's sin to then bring his divine? We're not talking the things that happen in the natural course of life, you know, Luke chapter 13, the Tower of Siloam, we die in car accidents, all those things. No, we're talking about the divine a deliberate judgment that is poured out on the earth at the hand of God. That's only happened a couple of times, right? It's happened It's happened once in this book already with the global flood, and it's about to happen in the next chapter where God brings down judgment. He doesn't use other men. He brings down divine judgment on the city of Sodom. It's going to happen again uh, in a little bit, uh, in a time future from when I'm recording this. He is going to bring what is called the divine judgment in the great tribulation, the day of the Lord. That is another period of God's wrath poured out. Not the wrath of man, not the persecution of the church, but God's wrath poured out on the world. And Abraham is saying, is God going to sweep away the righteous when he pours out his judgment? He's never done that before, right? He spared the righteous. Who was righteous back in the in the global flood? Noah. Noah was righteous. And his wife? You know, and his three sons and their wives, there were eight people who found favor in the sight of God. They were righteous, and God did not sweep them away when he swept everybody else away. Therein lies the answer. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We can always take it to the bank and say, yes, God will always do what is just. We might be subject to corruption. We might be able to be persuaded to change our minds and do something that we shouldn't do, but God never when it comes to justice, God is perfectly just. And so when Abraham makes this appeal here and, and asks another rhetorical question, the answer is self-evident. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Answer, yes. Yes, he shall. He will. He always does. That's the answer. And then there is some humility here, right? So the Lord answers him in verse 26. The Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. I am willing to let this egregious sin stand if there are 50 righteous in the city. And then we see this humility. And of course, here's the pattern, because then he goes from 50 
And then he answers, and we see this because he's now whittling it down. Abraham answered, verse 27, and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. There's humility there. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. I started with 50, but now what if 45, right? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And so he goes on and and they keep doing this. This pattern repeats, verse 27 and then verse uh, 29, suppose there are 40 there. And then in verse 30, another display of humility. Oh, let not the Lord be angry and, and I will speak. Now we go from 50 to 45 to 40. And now he says 30. Let's take it down by 10 in, in verse 30. And then he said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. Verse 31. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Verse 32, again, humility here. He says, oh, Lord, let not the Lord be angry. Verse 32, and I will speak again, but this once. Now we're jumping down by tens. So we went from 50 to 45 to 40. Then we jumped from 40 to 30. Then we went from 30 to 20. Now he says just one last time. Suppose in verse 31, 10 are found there. Now, remember the appeal that was made back in 25, or verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The self-evident answer to that question is yes, he will. And so the Lord answers him in verse 32, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. We started with 50, and now Lot is going through his, or Lot, Abraham is going through in his mind thinking, okay, I've got my nephew Lot. He's married. There are some children there. He's got his two daughters. They've probably got some, you know, boyfriends or suitors or whatever you're going to call them, right? Um, there's got to be some others. So between my nephew and his two kids, that's four people. I bet if they've if they've each got two people, that's six. Can there be four more in the entire city? We got to be able to find ten. There's no way. There's no way that there aren't 10 righteous. And and if there are, the Lord gives his word that he will spare the city. So there's really humility here. And we see this, you know, what does Abraham say? When you're making intercession, don't be presumptuous when you're doing it. Be full of humility. I mean, there is a sense, yes, where we can approach the throne of grace and we can do that with boldness, Hebrews chapter four. We know that. There's still humility. We're coming before the creator of heaven and earth. And he says, I am speaking to you. He recognizes his position. That's meekness there. He says that he is ashes and dust, humility. He begs the Lord not to be angry with him in verse 30 and 32, humility. When we are making intercession for our loved ones and for others, make sure that our requests and I'm saying this as much to me as to anybody, are bathed in humility. But then we also notice, as far as the quality or the character of his intercession, that it's genuine. You know, do you, do you for a moment think that Abraham is feigning humility here, that he's feigning meekness, that there's any, uh, you know, deception in this or just, there's no show, there's no bravado going on here. This is genuine intercession. I mean, he's now very carefully and humbly worked himself down from his initial starting point of 50 down to 10. We've already said, you know, he's 
probably in his mind thinking there, there've got to be 10 people. In other words, Abraham is not seeking destruction. What is Abraham seeking? He's seeking salvation. That's what he's seeking. Will the judge of all the earth do what is just? Oh yes, he will. But as much as it lies with us, we need to be seeking salvation. Listen, we, we can't seek destruction. That shouldn't be our goal. We don't delight in destruction. Yeah, there's some evil people in the world. The Lord will judge them. What is the thing that we should be pursuing? Well, God has left us on this earth. God has given us breath. And the thing that we should be seeking is salvation. We seek that and we leave the rest to God. And so Abraham in his humility does all this. And now he's satisfied. The conversation's over, right? Verse 33, and the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, uh, when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, it's settled. Abraham knows if God finds 10 righteous and there's no more perfect judge than God, then the city will be spared. If God doesn't find 10 righteous, then the city's not going to be spared. But it was a genuine effort at intercession. And that's what our intercession should be. I think that's a really important lesson for us to learn is that our intercession should be humble. It should be genuine. It doesn't, you know, we're not interceding to seek destruction. We're seeking salvation. And just as someone interceded for us on our behalf, and God opened our eyes and allowed us to see the truth of the gospel, well, you get the idea. And so I think it's, it's a very encouraging lesson for me. Even though we know what the outcome is, this is very, very strong, right? This is, this is faith strengthening right here. And it's a good thing for us to think on, to, uh, to consider, to meditate on. We'll leave it here and we'll pick it up starting in verse 1 of chapter 19 in our next episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net. Thank you.